Hello and welcome to another episode of the Weird, Wacky and Wonderful Stories podcast with your hosts, Shelley and Bella. Hey everybody and welcome to episode 52 of the Weird, Wacky and Wonderful Stories podcast. Hey, that's pretty cool. You know why? If we were a deck of cards, we'd have all of our cards. Okay, but people can listen to all of our podcasts now, one a week for a year. Right, and then they'll be crazy. Then they would be crazy. They would, after listening to us. You do realise that we're trying to promote people listening to the show, right? I know, but I'm honest. Oh, thank you very much. Ladies and gentlemen, I'll give you our PR department. Well, I'm not supposed to be the PR, PR department. I, I'm just supposed to be on the show. Bloody good job, isn't it? Yeah. Did I, does that mean I get a promotion? You can call yourself anything you like. We're not getting paid. Well, that's a good thing. How is that a good thing? Because I don't want people to pay me for services rendered. That's not cool, is it? You heard it here first. And Bella is happy to give services free of charge. Ladies and gentlemen. Uh, no, 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 no. That's not even right. Who's the guest? We have with us today the author of Wyatt's Weird World to tell us about his newest offering, Cornwall, the mystery, history, legend and law. All the way from Illinois now via the wonders of voice over IP. He is an Englishman, but this Welshman won't let that tarnish our friendship. Please welcome to the show, Mark Anthony Wyatt. Hi, Mark. Thank you very much. Thank you. It's a pleasure. A lot of people won't actually know this, but this is our second attempt at recording this because last time we actually spoke a little bit about a UFO incident over a spy base in Cornwall. And we were suddenly, I don't know whether we were pounced upon by... by yeah, the, that was weird, wasn't it? And it, then all of a sudden it was, yeah. it was. And we had it to was. A, we had to abort because we suddenly got yeah. lost all sound and everything. So maybe we'll yeah. start with that story this time. So if we lose everything, <laughs> okay. we haven't lost a whole, <laughs> a whole show. Right. Okay. <laughs> so I think it was buzzwords that we use. So there's certain words that they will pick up on. And it actually, it's amazing, isn't it? As you know, we were talking about the, how the cables leave Cornwall and they go to America and how they, they're all filtered through this place called, and we're probably going to get into something again now when I say it, through GCHQ, which is on the cliffs near Butte. So basically, I've done a lot of research on this, but I mean, I lived near it for 20 odd years and I know loads of people who know far more about this place than I do any communication that leaves Britain and has to go to America or elsewhere really it goes out from cables from the far west of Cornwall most of it there's one sort of further north towards Butte and everything is filtered so we know so that's probably why or possibly why the conversation suddenly went a bit strange and we lost each other towards the end because we mentioned certain things that I think get picked up on. Mm. So anyway, <laughs> so to get into the story, I presume that's what you want to hear about. Yes, how, please. Um, yes. <laughs> yeah. Okay, we get there eventually. North of Bude, north coast of Cornwall, around about seven or eight miles, I think it is, up the coast, in a very remote area, beautiful area, on the cliffs, there's a massive government base, GCHQ. It's linked with a place at Cambridge. It's all very, very hush-hush and top secret, despite the fact that you can see it from like 30 or 40 miles away. You know, it never used to be on maps at one time. 
but it is now. I got a friend called Tom, and Tom was on a woodland survival course. This is about 20 odd years ago. And he was on a woodland survival course, more or less alongside this place in the next valley. And it's beautiful cliffs and woods and open fields. And the idea was on his course was so that a, a small group of people could get to know each other better. Like one of those team building sort of things. Yeah, team building, yeah. And it was the last night of their course. And they planned to have this little sort of campfire in the field by the edge of the woods. They'd had a really lovely, long, hot summer day. They were just planning to have this nice casual evening. And my friend Tom, he decided he wanted, as the sun was still, you know, like half past nine, ten in summer, it's you know on a good day it's still still out isn't it yeah and he decided he wanted to go up high to his higher ground above his side of the valley and have a look down at the sea and he's got his camera with him and he's just enjoying the view he's watching a, a little fishing boat come down in the bay and he said it was like a toy you know he's quite high up and he said just a beautiful evening he's all on his own because the rest of them didn't go with him you know the sunlight started to go, you know, the end of the day. And he said the spotlights, these massive floodlights came on which is natural, you know, they came on at the base and there's these massive early warning dishes. They're just huge, like golf ball thing type things, you know. These lights just made for a beautiful picture. He said everything's just glowing. It's just these beautiful colours as the sun's going down. So he grabbed his camera and took a few pictures. As he did that, he had a strange sort of like cold feeling. It just came over him. He didn't know, like a shiver. He didn't know where it came from, just random. He started to feel very, very uneasy. He looked behind him and he said there was this light coming out of the woods and sort of a bit higher up the field. And it was getting bigger and bigger and coming towards him quite fast. As this happened, two jets flew over the base, directly over the base, two military jets heading towards Wales. So anyone doesn't know the geography, Bude is on the north coast of Cornwall. And between Bude and Wales, you've got the um, Bristol Channel. And the jets were heading across the channel the Bristol Channel towards Wales, but directly over the base. So he felt really uneasy up there anyway. He didn't know why. Went back to the um, the campsite they'd made, and they were just finishing off the evening and just getting preparing to um, put their heads down and have some sleep. He couldn't sleep all night. He felt very, very uneasy, and he felt there was movement around them in the woods and lights, strange lights, this sort of thing. Nobody else was really affected, but he noticed all this. Anyway, the next day, he hasn't looked at these photos yet, so the next day, he puts them up on his computer system, and he sees, I think, off the top of my head, this is from memory, I think there were three pictures he took, quite quickly, one after the other. And in one of those pictures, there is clearly a craft directly over, and it's not one of the jets, directly over the base. Mm. So this is where it gets interesting. He's got a, where he lives, He and I, I've known him for well, a long time now, 20-odd years. Next door to him is a guy that actually works at that base. And he's one of these sort of technical um, computer systems guys, you know, and they're all under sort of top secret oaths. They can't talk about what they really do. And he'd had a few conversations with him before, and he'd realised that he's a nice guy and he's quite... He's a bit cagey about what he says because he has to be. And he thought, well, I'm going to go and show him because he'd seen this photo and he's, he wanted his opinion on him. That's quite a risky move, really, isn't it? He must have really trusted that guy to have shown him that photo. Yeah, he just asked him outright, you know, have you ever seen any UFOs? And if so, where have you seen them? Sort of? and, uh, and he said, well, yeah, I have actually. And he told him that he'd seen a craft over the base, directly over the base, with his naked eyes, with witnesses at the base. Obviously, this interested my friend Tom. And he said, well, I've got something to show you. Come and have a look at this. He said he wasn't particularly surprised. But his question to Tom was, were there two jets 
And he said, yeah, how did you know? And he said, they always send up two jets. And in my research for the UFO side of this book in Cornwall, that comes up over and over again. I'm not quite sure what the reason for that is. It could date back to the, I think it was a mantle case in America or an American airman. It might have happened in Britain, but back in the 50s or 60s. My memory's about a vague, but there was a case where a, a military jet pilot pursued one of these UFOs basically too high and just kept going and going. And the poor guy never came back, you know. And I think it might have grown out of that. They might have to send them in pairs so that they can sort of police each other, if you like. Maybe. And, and obviously you've got... And you've, you've got a corroboration as well, then, haven't you? You know, both jets exactly. have got equipment on it which can track things, even if you're not talking about human corroboration. You might be talking about yes. instrumental corroboration. That's right. It's quite interesting what you said, actually, because I know that there's a chap who has described a lot of these type of phenomena that you're talking about here in Western Supermare. He lives, oh, right. he lives in Western Supermare, and, in fact, he uses night vision goggles and yes. and he regularly sees unidentified craft let's say yeah flying around the western supermare area and obviously you and i know the geography that slap bang between cornwall and wales is what exactly <laughs> yeah yeah That's there right. may be an element of corroboration actually i'll see if we're gonna have to see if we can get this other guy on the show i can't remember his name now i'll do a bit of digging and mm-hmm. see if see if we can get him on the show okay but yes, he showed this guy the photograph. What did the guy say about the photograph? He said that he didn't appear to be too surprised. He was interested, but he didn't appear to be too surprised. And as he said, he'd seen stuff himself with his own eyes. And I think it was more than once. He'd seen one quite big craft over the base, along with witnesses from the base, which I always find quite funny, really, because, you know, we've got these huge sort of spy stations, as we call them, and they're, they're watching everybody and, mm. you know, watching the stars or whatever, who's, who's coming and going. That's the plan, I suppose. And these things just sort of sit over the top, you know, like, here we are. You know, it's, they're playing with us, really. Yeah, but it wasn't seen by the naked eye by no. Tom. You no, know, Tom no, didn't see it with his naked around. eye. It, it picked it up on the camera. Exactly. So, again, whether it's yeah. in some kind of different light spectrum that we can't see with the so. naked eye. Yeah, they're definitely shielded, I think. I think most of the time they're shielded, aren't they? This book that you're going to be releasing now isn't just a book about ghostly hauntings. You cover so many different areas. I've, I've just like a lifelong interest in Cornwall, really. And not just the sort of supernatural paranormal angle, but um, the, the history and literature as well. I mean, I've I read all the old um, Poldark books back in the 70s, you know, and I've read, reread them. I, I love the history of it as well. And all the Daphne du Maurier stuff. I mean, it's, you know, they're all interrelated. I mean, obviously, history and the paranormal I mean, is just like, like hand in glove, really. Mm. The way I've written it, they sort of evolve. They start off with a sort of simple idea and then they sort of go off on tangents a bit and then I gradually <laughs> work it down to something that's, um, that flows a bit better and fits together. And, and you get all these little connections that come up in your research which you didn't know about. I mean, it's, I've learned so much just researching this book and I, I'm not that brilliant at putting it over verbally maybe. I'm trying. But if you read the book, there's so much information in there and a lot of it is sort of cross-relates you've sent me some excerpts of the book or should i say us and we've had a a read through it and it is really it is really well written and what i do like about it is that you've got as you said you've got the historical elements as well it's called the mystery history and 
therefore yes. you are relating to a lot of the things that have gone on on those lands in Cornwall. Yes. You've got one, for instance, a story right at the start of the book, which I really liked, about a certain gentleman's experience with a glowing ball. A glowing yes, ball? Yes, yeah. Yeah, a glowing ball. A glow, glowing ball, yeah. Only one, though, right? One glowing ball. Oh, you're, <laughs> it's typical of, Bella to, typical of Bella to try and turn it into something else, isn't it, eh? He didn't have an infection. It's not that kind of a glowing ball, all right? Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry, Mark, go on. No, that's all right. When we were discussing this last week, um, your idea, I thought your idea was fantastic, but we're, I'll build up to that. But I think your idea was amazing. I think it fits in possibly, possibly even is the way it is. I gathered together lots of bits of information from various people who mostly didn't know each other who had had experiences in this village. So there's a small village called Poffil, just near Bude, very close to Bude. It's like a very, very old church, uh, thatched cottages, that sort of thing, you know. So my son... Many years ago, he was walking home from Stratton, probably, and he was walking down through this tiny, sleepy village in the sort of early hours. And he felt that there was something sort of tracking him, like a, he just he just felt very uneasy. Some, something was following him, and he felt it was in the field alongside, behind this Cornish hedge, you know, on his, on his quiet lane. And this went on for some time, and he could hear movement, he couldn't see anything, and eventually that was it. So it, it's it's... A bit of a nothing story, but it sort of fits in with everything else because lots of people have reported sort of weird, weirdness in the village, really. Uh, now, this guy, Len, he lived right on this T-junction in the village in a very, very old-fashioned cottage. And one summer evening, he and his wife were watching television with all the windows open because it was so hot still from a long, day, long, hot day. And they could hear what sounded like the baby crying from a distance. And it was it gradually got louder and louder and louder. It sounded like a baby, but it wasn't a baby. It was something weird and creepy. Then it sort of calmed down, and his wife went off to bed and left him up watching something on the TV. So he sat there, and then a little bit later, the noise started again. This noise got louder and louder and creepier and creepier. And he was determined to see what this was, because it appeared to be coming right down towards it. So he's got his head stuck out of this cottage window looking up left up the hill and eventually this glowing ball appears in the middle of a road above the road not actually on the road but slightly above it you know eight nine ten foot and it's traveling at about 30 to 40 miles an hour and it just goes straight down the road screeching and screaming and he said there was you know it just felt weird and as it went past him instead of carrying on down the road it went straight through one of those old red phone boxes and through i think an electric meter behind it and then through the wall after that you couldn't see it it was in somebody's garden oh i forgot to mention he said there were like little comet like bits sticking out of the back of this ball uh sort of whipping around a bit like a tail yeah that's it yeah I was discussing that story, I think it was with Janice, actually, and basically she said, well, what if, because there is a battlefield about, if you walk, it's about 10 minutes, 20, 15 minutes, you could drive there in five minutes from where he is. She said, what if that was a horse, a, a ghost of a horse, and that was the tail, like an ethereal tail whipping around? And that would explain the, the screeching noises. It would be like a horse panicking. You know? mm. we, su- we suggest, I mean, I don't know that it was a horse, but. And, and Len certainly didn't say it was. I have to make that clear. He didn't say that. Yeah. That was just our interpretation. But it, it might be. In 1643, in the English Civil War, you had uh, the Royalists against the Parliamentarians. Uh, Sir Ralph Hopton, he was in charge of the Royalists. He had about 2,400 men under his command. And there was a strong sort of Royalist element down in Cornwall at that time. 
And then you had the Earl of Stamford, who was the parliamentarian uh, leader, and he had nearly 6,000 men, so they were totally outnumbering the royalists. The battle went on all day, and it was you know, pretty gruesome. The royalists had arrived at Bude the day before, and they camped out by the beaches up on the, where the golf course is now, up on the downs. Overnight, they decided what to do, and they divided them up into, I think it was, uh, it was 600 men in each column. So I think it was four. Yeah, four lots of 600 men. And I think two of them had approached it from the coast, if you like, and the other two, I think, had gone round and tried to encircle them because they were up on this hill, this South Africa site in Stratton. And uh, cut a long story short, at the end of the day, um, sort of mid-afternoon, I think, the royalists had outdone the, the parliamentarians. So the 2,400 men had beaten the 5,600. Wow. And during that time, which is what we're trying to get to, is... Uh, there would have been, as we know, in any battle, especially in the old days when it's like, you know, so hand-to-hand, face-to-face, you know, it must have been terrible. There would be a lot of fear, a lot of anguish and terror, you know. Hundreds of people got killed. Horses would have been um, dismounted, if that's the word, you know, the, the men would have been knocked mm. off, killed. They would have run off. They would have just panicked and gone. The same with men on both sides. You know, fear would have taken over with some of them and they would have been out of there. <laughs> which I think could explain what happened to my son in that possibly the presence that was following him may well have been a deserter or an enemy combatant who was hiding and was still hiding. If you were on the winning team and you'd done a runner, you were a coward in their eyes and you would have probably been killed as a coward. And if you were an enemy combatant, you know, the chances are you might have been killed. I mean, they, they didn't mess around in the old days, did they? No, no, not at all. <laughs> there was no prisoners of war, was there? No. Oh, God, it's terrible. When you, when, you, when you go back even further, it's absolutely hideous. And you suggested that maybe not only would, would it possibly be like a random ghostly horse panicking and repeating its uh, last moments or whatever, it might have been the amalgamation of all of that energy all that fear and anguish and terror maybe that it all gets sort of hoovered up together and comes into this like big mass if you like and then it fires off almost like a steam kettle boiling or or a cannonball firing it's like and then occasionally it randomly shoots off like like energetically and somebody gets to experience it what made me think of that was the fact that the description that len had given it almost seemed like that glowing ball wasn't just a glowing ball like you said it had things coming off of it at the back things trailing off of it so it it just sounded to me like it was possibly more than one energy collecting together but either way whatever it is it's unexplained it is it is and i wanted to sort of get away from just trotting out the same stories that I'd heard before and everyone else had heard. Initially, I wasn't going to bother much with my hometown at the time, which was viewed. But as the stories started coming in on email and letters and whatever, and people telling me stories, I just got all these fascinating stories. And there were so many that I'd never heard before. But there is a hot spot, really, between where that GCHQ base is. And if you come down from there, which is Morwenstow, down towards Butte, and then come inland just slightly, to around sort of stratum, which is only like a mile or two. You're left with a shape of something like an obelisk, but obviously an obelisk is three-dimensional, isn't it? But mm. it's that sort of shape. It's like a long, skinny triangle. Within that area, I mean, I was looking on the map, and there's, there's quite a lot of stuff has gone on around there. A lot of the stories that came in were within that sort of area. 
what about Prudence Peppers? Is that story yeah. kind of in the same sort of... Not quite. That's sort of outside a bit. That's all around the granite area, really, I suppose. You've got oh, right. the, um, the sort of Bodmin Moor. It's not that far away. It's about 20-odd 20, 20 miles away, I suppose. I, I think I think Shelley likes alliteration, so it's um, Prudence <laughs> Pepper and the Phantom Flames. <laughs> I'm going to have to explain it now. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, because my first book was Wyatt's Weird World. I've got to think about alliteration, I think. Then I was going to call this Cornish book Creepy Curious Cornwall. Oh, gosh. <laughs> I love it. No, I'm not going to do that. On the Weird, Wacky, um, Wonderful Stories yeah. podcast, right? <laughs> yeah. So North Cornwall, 20-odd miles away, inland, sort of quite not far from Jamaica in, really. You've got this disused airfield, which has got quite a history. During the Second World War, it was used by various people, the Americans, the Canadians, the Polish, English, and probably a few I've forgotten. I think it's one of the highest airfields in the country, if not the highest. But being in Cornwall, it's quite an awkward place because you get a lot of fog on the high ground, especially around Bodmin. She was a London ambulance driver during the Second World War, this lady. After the end of the war, she wanted to change, get out of the city. So she moved down to Cornwall and she ended up on, the, on Bodmin Moor, very close to this airfield. And not long after she got there, she started hearing the sounds of bombers, which she sort of recognised those sounds. She'd been around during the war, you know. She'd heard these sounds of these planes coming in and various sounds of like a busy airfield. Now, she knew there was an old airfield rare but she didn't know it was in use which it turned out it wasn't it had been shut down in uh, 1945 so and by now we're talking about this is like very late 50s early 60s and she's hearing this regularly and she's she's really curious about this because she knows by now by talking to locals that the airfield hasn't been used since 45 so she starts going up there at night to basically keep a lookout and see what's going on she's not thinking ghosts at all she's just thinking there's something going on here. Maybe, I don't know, maybe a private planes are coming and going. And and she just wanted to see what was going on. So she went up there on a motorbike. <laughs> she was a biker. Yes. <laughs> You've got all these abandoned buildings. I mean, I've been up there loads of times. It's a really cool place to go. And there are ghost sightings up there quite a lot. And she found this place to sort of like, she took a flask of coffee and whatever and just sat there through the early hours. And she experienced several times the sound, she never actually saw anything, well, not except for a flash occasionally, but she would hear these planes coming in. She would hear men shouting uh, as if they were busy sort of giving each other's orders and whatever. And she would hear emergency vehicles. She would smell the smell of like burning tires, like when they land and they screech down on the runway. So she had all these sets, she sensed all this stuff, but she didn't actually see anything except for she would see like a flash of light at the end of the runway, which would then go like a flame. And then she'd hear the emergency vehicles. So it was like it was like a pattern and it repeated itself in a certain order. She experienced that several times. And then she took a friend up and they they both experienced it too. So so it was corroborated as well. I was just going to ask you that, whether it was yeah, just her that yeah. had actually seen it or on that same subject, there's an REF uh, museum up there. And they have mannequins of REF guys and REF ladies, the, the refs of WREF. And they're in their sort of uniforms of the time. And quite frequently, they've had, the ladies have had their clothing messed with. They've literally had, you know, bras taken off, and I'm not going to go into detail, but oh, wow. they've had clothes removed. And they know, the, the staff at work there, they know that that place was locked down for the night. 
Hmm. How can this stuff never makes the news? I don't know. It's crazy. Well, it's I think bizarre. it probably does locally, but it's not taken seriously, is it? It's yeah, bizarre. True. And that's why we need people like you, Mark, to actually tell people about these things, because otherwise they just get forgotten. They do. They do. Because one sort of theory about if it is supernatural or paranormal or whatever, a lot of times, once whatever it is is brought to light, it stops. Oh, right, yeah. Theoretically being that that spirit or entity or whatever it is once is be now right it wants their story to uh, be told and then yep. yeah and then it sort of stops which you know. But that's not driving the press, is it? The press well, aren't no, saying, oh, no, I'm not no. going to bother printing this because yeah. it might stop. They're not printing it because, unfortunately, what sells papers these days is what celebrity is doing what other celebrity. Well, rather maybe. Than- yes. But I would pick up a paper or a magazine. I mean, we get a magazine delivered about yeah. all this sort of stuff. Yeah. But I would, oh, well. I would read that to see, wait, what's that all about? As long as it didn't happen right here. Where we are in our house, <laughs> you know, or under, I'm good. <laughs> we we literally just yesterday had an experience here. Just just it's we we have occasional visitors here. I think, but you know, it's it's not it's not nasty. It's not frightening. But uh, the, the the dog tells us <laughs> really oh, wow. just, by, just by her mannerisms, we know that there's something here. And then we go cold. We get that cold feeling like, oh, there was something here. Our dog would be all, hey, how you doing? She'd want to play with whatever it was because she'd think it was yeah. cool. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. She don't have the our, sense our Lisa, to run. Yeah. <laughs> our Lisa was more like curious. Just the other day, we were sat on the sofa in the front room and um, suddenly she started looking up the stairs. And she had her front paws up on the steps and she was looking around the corner and then she looked at us and then she looked back. It was almost as if she was saying, well, do you know there's somebody upstairs? Do you yeah. know there's somebody on the stairs? <laughs> um, we can't see them, but we're pretty sure that there is something that comes and goes. And other people who've come here who are very sensitive people have sort of independently corroborated each other by people who don't know each other, you know, have sort of described the same sort of voices that they've heard. Wow. Um, I, I don't tend to hear those voices here, Touchwood, but <laughs> well, although I do occasionally get um, sort of somebody, like a lady, sort of saying, hello, Mark, or whatever, you know, when I'm half asleep. And I, and I think, oh, where did that come from? There's never anyone there, but I can see. It's Janice <laughs> winding you up, it yeah. is. Yeah, isn't it? Yes, yeah, so it, it could be her talking in her sleep. Yeah. <laughs> um, you've led us actually quite nicely onto something talking about dogs. We're going to stay with the animal kingdom because I know that within your book you talk about Owlman. There's two sides to that, really. There's the, you know, on the South Cornish coast, there's like these legends down there of the, the Owlman at Mornan. The other side is the owls that you, you know, you often read like the Mike Cleland research and all this sort of stuff which I had a personal experience with. It's all in the book, but it's just so weird, so many synchronicities with that. But if we talk about the Falmouth one, that's the one most people know. And I'm not sure whether they're one and the same thing, really. I don't think they are. I think I think it's a separate thing. For those who don't know, in the 70s, uh, 76, two teenage girls who were on holiday in Falmouth on the South Cornish coast claimed to have seen this owl man and they described this. Well, they didn't say it was an owl man. They described what they saw. And they told this guy, his, his name's Anthony Doc Shields. And he looked at the picture and listened to their description. And he said, oh, owl man. And that's how that 
name got that. Mm. His involvement in that whole thing has been is fascinating. But most people, I would say, think it was it's just a big con, and he was a showman. You know, he was a known showman anyway. But I think there's more to it. So these girls claim to have cited it. Then there were another two girls that cited it a little later, a year or so later. Various other people have claimed to see it. And it's all around that same area. Now, Mornan is like it's like on Little Estuary Creek sort of area. And Falmouth is all like that. It's very, it's a very different Cornwall to the Cornwall that most people, you know, the Cornwall I love is like the bleak Cornwall, the, the granite moortops and the far west as well you know like down there it was granite going um, but there's a softer side to Cornwall which is like around Falmouth it's wooded and very pretty and that's where this all took place there's a sea monster as well allegedly called Morgawa and it's Morgawa's Mile which is between two points on the coast so everything that the owl man and the sea monster all of these sightings occur within a sort of small area really and they're all connected like it or not with this guy called Anthony Doc Shields who once billed himself as the Wizard of the West. And he, he was an illusionist, a magician, and he's just like one of these really colourful characters that likes to tell a story. And so the, the thing is, how much of this is true, we don't know, because a lot of these sightings went through him. He reported them, or he wrote about them, or somebody told him about them, you know. But as I say in my book, he moved away from Cornwall a while ago, and he went to live in Ireland. And people have continued to see these things. So I would say that despite all that, you know, cynicism and criticism of him as making it all up, I don't think he did. I think there is some reality to it because fishermen in ports all around Cornwall have always had these stories about sea monsters, for example. And he knew about them before he sort of put himself into a mix, if you like. And they continue after he's gone. So as I said, if you think of a baby in the bathwater, expression so if you replace the baby with the owl man and the mogwa and replace the water with falmouth bay you know you don't want to throw one out you know because it's there is something to it and it continues after his involvement so that that's my take on it anyway what happened in these sightings well it was just like with the two girls they were just wandering around the churchyard at morning which is a very very rustic beautiful little church on on the, on the creek there and this figure supposedly came and ran after them i suppose and frightened them that was it really right they gave him tony doxio as a description of what they claimed they'd seen and um he, he took it on from there and he gave it life you can't really tell the story of the owl man without telling his story because he was like behind it yeah he did a monster raising which was all put on for fun and he waved his wand about a bit you know as he said he, he talked about it afterwards and he said and surprise surprise he said i thought i was just messing around and he said but the mogwa made an appearance you know and then he claimed there was a photograph which looked remarkably like the loch ness picture that went that got sent to all the newspapers and that went around the world in the late 70s and then because he was so successful there in inverted cons he went up to scotland and he he tried to raise nessie and then like he says surprise surprise nessie came up too you know so he he is a showman and he's he's just he's an amusing guy i think despite all that i think there is something there has been something there and it was there before he arrived and it's there after he's gone you know but the more serious side of the owl stuff is what's been happening in more recent years with people who have these huge owl sightings. Now, I don't think they're one and the same because the drawings I've seen the alleged witnesses in around Falmouth 
it looks more like well, a bird man, you know. Whereas what people tend to see with like McClellan research is more almost like a dwarf man that looks like an owl. But the people who see it deep down inside, they know that's not an owl. But at the time, they see an owl. And I believe it's linked in with the UFO thing. It's, it's obvious to me. But Yeah, that's a pretty common thing, isn't it? Owls yeah, I mean, it's like a yeah, screen, screen image, isn't it? Really? Mm. Yeah, there was one case, I think Mike Cleland talked about it, where he said one of these witnesses was actually looking at one of these huge owls, you know, four or five foot tall, I think. As he was looking at it, he could hear the words owl, 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 as if something was trying to program him to tell him what he was seeing. Right. That's weird. Yeah. And I think, you know, it all comes down to the way our brain decodes information. It comes in through the eyes and we decode it in a certain way. I think they, whatever they are, can sort of, I don't know, sort of plug into it and change our perception maybe what we're seeing to protect us and to protect them um, but then these people who see these things and i count myself as one of them they know at the time that it's just very very strange very weird at the time i saw mine it which was at that crossroads i didn't question it at the time although it felt strange it wasn't until afterwards and i kept thinking well that couldn't have been an owl and then we, we looked into it like um you know when you look at it all those descriptions of those real flesh and blood three-dimensional creatures are not as big as what people are seeing. In my case, what I saw was blocking the road. I tried to turn right, and this thing just stood there. I had a Suzuki Vitara Jeep. I don't know if you remember what they look like. I, I do, yeah. Yeah. Well, it was actually the head of this thing was higher than the bonnet. What, and it stood as on it, the floor? Stood up, yeah, as it stood on the floor. Jeez. So that, I, don't, I, I haven't measured that because I, I, I got rid of that car some time ago. I should have measured it. I won't go into my details of mine. It's all in the book, but... It actually took off. I mean, it actually took off like a bird, and it flew past my window. And it was as its wings flapped, my car shook because I was stationary. My car actually wobbled wobbled with it. And then I went off to get my son. That was the whole thing. I was going out to get him in the early hours. And I remember picking him up and telling him about it. And he said, Dad, owls aren't that big. (laughs) And I I remember thinking, yeah, he's right. They're not. And then I, I remember telling my friend Tom, the guy that has supplied me with quite a few stories here I say witness experience not stories and he said exactly the same he said well owls aren't that big (laughs) (laughs) and that was like a reoccurring thing that kept coming up shortly after I finished writing that experience out I thought I'd finished it and I was here actually in Illinois at the time and I thought I've been writing all day I'm tired and fed up with it I just want to sit down put my feet up and have a beer and I thought I'd find a podcast to listen to this is about two years ago, I think. And I found this one called Expanded Perspectives from uh, Texas, a couple of guys from Texas, which was it's pretty good. I like it. They're just a couple of guys chatting away about all this stuff. And I looked at the options on the YouTube list, you know, and there was this one with a picture of an owl and an alien, you know, with, you know, the, the, the typical alien that we all mm-hmm. look at with almond-shaped eyes and all that. And I thought, oh, that looks interesting. And I've listened to that, so I put it on. And cut a long story short, they're talking about these people who've written them because they tend to just read out people's stories, really. And a guy from Texas had written in a description of what he'd seen. And the countryside, weirdly to me, because I'm not, you know, I'm not familiar with Texas, sounded almost like the countryside I was in at Cornwall. It's weird. He was talking about country lanes. And his description was almost. Well, 90% the same as mine. Hmm. I almost sort of spat my beer out. I was like, what? 
how did they get hold of my story? <laughs> you know, how did he know this stuff? And how did they steal it? <laughs> you know, sort of thing. It was weird. This guy in Texas had gone to have regression because he knew, he knew that wasn't really an owl. Something told him. And the guy said to him, like, okay, take your, you know, I don't know what he said. He would say, like, take your time, relax, you know, where are you? What are you doing? And, and then he said, well, just have a, is the owl there? You know, it's a big owl there or whatever. I'm just paraphrasing what he was saying. And he said, well, take a good look at it and just describe what you're seeing. And he started at the head of this owl and he described what he looked like. And he said, well, just take your eyes down. And he looked down. And when he got to the bottom, there was a pause. And he said, well, what are you seeing? And he said, he said, the owl's got boots on. What? Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. It was like, what? I had a similar experience, but I didn't see that. Maybe that's what made it so tall. It was wearing platform shoes. <laughs> <laughs> There's two stories going on there. So you've got the the Owl Man is a traditional thing that the Doc Shields guy was involved with, and that was more of a more of a cryptid type thing. And I think the one I've just been talking about, I think that's totally different. I think that's mm. like a screen memory type thing. I mean, when I saw my strange owl, it almost felt as if, and I've heard this from other people who've seen stuff as well, similar things. It was almost like it was. Uh, pissed off with me like you're disturbing something mm. that's what it came across it was like it was hiding something from me it was like it was standing between me and something it didn't want me to see ah really that was only an impression i mean i didn't see anything so you felt intimidated by it almost yeah oh definitely but having said that when i when i was doing my research i was looking at the more natural side of things you know ignoring all that stuff trying to think well what else could it be and in america there are Indian legends of this. I can't remember the name for it now, but they, they have legends of these huge owls that will devour quite large animals and even children. And they will sort of swallow them whole, you know. And what they do, they mesmerize the prey by just staring at them with, it, with their eyes, you know. A bit like, you know, like a deer in the headlights sort of just freezes. They have that sort of effect on their victims, and they then swallow them if they're, you know, not if they're child size. They can swallow them, and they supposedly did this. You know, there's a possibility that something got blown off course because that does happen. Just a few years ago, we had one imbued that shouldn't have been there, and we had all these twitches descend on imbued, which is quite funny. Mm. We should explain what twitches are, maybe, because I, I know in America they don't know what twitches is. Bird watchers, yeah. Your foreword to the book is written by someone who I think influenced you and someone who you have profound respect for. Well, his name's Michael Williams. He died a couple of weeks ago. In fact, just the day before we spoke last. Uh, he, he was 86, I think. I started reading his books when I was, um, well, actually in Cornwall uh, in the early 70s. You know, when you, when you used to go into these seaside coastal places in Britain, I'm not sure it's the same now, you go into a newsagent, so they always used to have these little slim volumes on hauntings and legends, especially in Cornwall. And I picked up one back in sort of 72, 73, I think it was, which was, um, I think it was The Supernatural in Cornwall by Michael Williams. And I, I didn't know who he was at the time. I've read so many of his books since then. And so he was like my sort of genesis of getting into this stuff back in the early 70s. Over the years, I got dozens of them, you know, and I'd pick them up and read them every now and again. And some became favorites like that one. And I gradually grew to appreciate them more and more. And then I had quite a long time where I didn't really look at all this stuff at all. You know, I was just getting on with raising a family and too busy and so on. And then I moved down to Cornwall in 1999. And I sort of discovered that he lived quite close by on Bodmin Moor. Cut a long story short, I started writing this Cornish book 
about supernatural experiences around there. And I thought, well, it would be great to have, you know, have an interview with Michael and see what I can learn from Michael. And because it would be like closing a circle almost. Mm. In fact, that's how I feel it's gone. But, you know, so he was like my earliest interest. I mean, I mean, weirdly, I end up living near him, going to his cottage, interviewing him, which was amazing. It was so funny. It was quite a funny experience, really. Uh, but I got so much information, so wonderful stories out of him. And he, shortly after that, he invited me to join his um, paranormal group, which had been in existence since 1965. You know, it's a very small group. You mm. can't just go along. And so I was really honoured with that. And I gradually got to know him a bit better. And we, I went on loads of his investigations. They, they don't do investigations like you see on the telly, where they all run around in the dark with gadgets. It's more history-based, and they have a couple of mediums and so on, you know. But he was unique, really unique guy. In his daytime job, he was a journalist on the uh, Cornish Guardian, and he was a publisher. He was a self, you know, he had his own little publishing company. You know, in the days before, you know, this whole punk ethic of do it yourself, you know. Mm. I grew out of that. I love all that. The fact that you just you don't wait for someone to do something. You just go out and do it. Make your own luck. Make your own you know, future. And he, he was doing that way before... We were. He was doing that in the mid sixties. He he just decided, oh, I'm going to write books and I'm going to publish other people's books. And and I love the sort of cheek of it. And he he he's in he would agree it was cheek. He he was just like this unknown writer. He was heavily into the supernatural and so on. When he first had this idea in sort of mid sixties, he approached all these big names in Cornish writing. You know, Daphne du Maurier's of this world and um, I don't know, Dennis Baker, a few other people. And he basically said to him, oh, can you contribute a story and to, his, to this book I'm doing, you know? And then, of course, he slotted his own story in there amongst them. And so, so he's like this young upstart at the time, really. <laughs> and, he's, and he's alongside all these wonderful people. So he knows it's going to sell because people are going to buy it for Daphne du Maurier and all the rest of them. Mm. He said to me, I was really cheeky to do it, in you know, words, words he would use. But I, I recently read, reread that, and his piece was as good as anything in it. I mean, it was exceptional. He wrote dozens and dozens of supernatural. He called it supernatural. I grew up with that term in the 70s, so I still tend to use it. And I, I've got his story. It's turning out to be a tribute because obviously he died a couple of weeks ago. And um, it's just fascinating. I, I can't really put it all over just chatting about it, really. He was an all-rounder. He was a sportsman as well. He was a, he was a good cricketer. He was an a, a animal benefactor. He had interest in looking after horses. And he, he had huge respect from everybody that knew him. He he was a real character. He had this amazing old weldy. Although he was Cornish, he sounded. <laughs> he would hate me saying this, but he sounded more English. He had a very old-fashioned sort of BBC English voice. I used to do the whole suit thing because I was I was a sales rep, and I sort of got tired of all that and ended up doing my own thing and writing and so on. And I didn't fancy getting all dressed up. Because he was he was like an elderly man, you know, and he had different sort of standards from mm. his times. And he rubbed shoulders with like minor royalty and people like that, and he he had a different way of life completely to me. Mm. And I didn't want to disrespect him, but I, I also didn't want to turn up in a suit because I wouldn't have felt comfortable. So when I appeared, uh, I had like a compromise of <laughs> sort of smart denims, but ones with fewer scuff marks on them, you know, and a, and a jacket <laughs> and so on. And, um, and I, I remember when I got out of the car, I didn't put this in the story, but I mean, he was looking me up and down like, 
oh, you're a bit of a mess and you could do with a haircut, you know. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> so, and I'm sure he was thinking that, but, but because he was such a decent guy, um, he wasn't, although he was like that himself, he wasn't judgmental of others, other people. Yeah. And he admired, when you read his books, he admired all the people that were eccentric, if you like, mm. but did stand out. Hawker, people like that. He loved Hawker. Hawker's another subject. That could, you could talk about Hawker for hours. So, yeah, I probably digressed off the subject. So. <laughs> oh, that's okay. So he's written a foreword in your book. It's awesome for yourself having, yeah. you know, like you said, respected the man for as long as you have to have him yeah. do this foreword in your book. As I said before, we, we're recording this prior to your book going out. Where will people be able to get hold of the book? But Yeah, just for all the normal all the normal places. It's, I'm going to put it online. They can contact me through Facebook. I'm, I'm under Mark. Anthony Wyatt by my email, which is this is a strange one moonwindbag1 at hotmail.co.uk. So that's moon, M O O N, wind, W I N D, bag, B A G, the number one at hotmail.co.uk. And I'll always respond. Thank you very much for spending the time with us today. Really do appreciate it. And we actually got through it. Can you believe yeah. it? We got, we, we didn't get we did. hacked by, you know, the powers that be. <laughs> <laughs> they probably wanted to hear the stories too, you know. So. <laughs> yeah. Exactly, exactly. They're probably, they're probably in line to buy the book. <laughs> they probably want to know how much of this, your, how much you actually put in there. So yeah, they're, they're like, gonna, oh, we yeah. better go. We better go yeah. buy this book. They, they mm. want to try and find their lead, don't they? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, so, so I, I gave him a false name, and um, <laughs> yeah, yeah ah, you'll so, never find out. Yeah, I'll never find out. <laughs> I didn't. I, I didn't know. Sorry, uh, just before we finish, I didn't know that there was a GCHQ anyway in Bude. I thought there oh, was right. just the one in Cheltenham. So totally opened no, my eyes no. up to it. Didn't know. Have a, didn't have a clue. Well, I, I, I was recently researching all the cables, as I say, as I said earlier that were leaving the far west of Cornwall, mostly, but also Nibiud. And I learned from there. I mean, I already sort of suspected it anyway, but everything, literally everything, is filtered. And anything coming into the country, especially from America, the American government actually filter it. Hmm. And so so they're actually listening to American people. I say, say Mark, you can't trust Americans, can you? <laughs> I should say for our listeners that obviously they know Bella is, but your partner Janice yeah. is also American, so a little, little bit of a topical joke there. Janice and I will be doing a podcast later. Yeah, yeah I'm sure you will. Minus, That's a good idea, actually. Minus your. <laughs> All right, listen. Thanks again, Mark. Really do appreciate you spending your time with us. Thank you very much, Shadi. Thank you, Bella. It's been a pleasure. Take care. All the best. Bye. 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 Bye.